0: good morning friends. I'm honored to be with you this morning. I'm privileged to bring the word and I'm happy to have seen many of you in the park last weekend. Uh, I had sunglasses on and as I worked through the crowd I said hello to some and people had to strain a little bit maybe check my name tag because I realized my sunglasses were hiding my identity a little bit and uh, so thanks for persevering. As a 30-year-long Sider, I can tell you how meaningful it was to see our church spill out over into my park. I walked that park many, many times with my dog and uh, years ago with a stroller. So it's meaningful to have the church convene there. So thanks for coming. Thanks for being a joyful part of the celebration. And and as Pastor Ross has said, thank you for your giving. You gave in time and volunteer hours. You gave monetarily. And it's a joy to be a part of such an obedient congregation. So thank you. You know, I was uh, in grade school when I got my first pair of glasses. I've been wearing them for a long time. And in fourth grade, I picked a very stylish pair of little wire-rimmed gold glasses that resembled something the Beatles were wearing at the time. I was a very cool fourth grader at that point. But I added to my poor mother's sense of guilt when uh, leaving the optometrist, I exclaimed, look, Mom, you can see all the individual leaves on the trees. Truth is, there's a big world out there but we don't know what we're missing if we're not seeing clearly. I sure didn't know what I was missing until I looked through the right kind of lens. I'm sure most of you can relate, because according to the Vision Council, 75% of Americans wear some kind of corrective lenses. Contacts, readers, distance glasses, whatever you wear. But there's a lot more than just corrective lenses out there now. Uh, You can get 3D glasses to have a spectacular movie-watching experience, and maybe you're familiar with the whole industry surrounding virtual reality glasses. I personally have never worn any. I've gotten some reports after a few services of some of you who have, and what a cool experience it is. If you're not familiar with them, virtual reality glasses create an immersive experience and allow you, they kind of trick your brain into thinking you're somewhere where your body isn't standing. So we have a picture here. This is what they look like kind of on the shelf, they're uh, hooked up to your entertainment system maybe, but this is what they look like when you look through the lens. So you could be sitting here in the sanctuary but looking out at a city street or apparently anywhere in the world. Someone told me they did a virtual tour of Yellowstone sitting in their living room, so it sounds like a cool thing. You kind of escape your current reality with these kinds of glasses. But today as we look into God's word, I'm not encouraging you to escape that kind of reality. I'm asking you to move with me into a deeper reality as we consider and look through a lens to see the world as God sees it. And Will you join me in prayer as we do just that? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege of opening your word But I recognize that all that has gone before with my own preparation and my own prayer is worthless unless it's anointed by your spirit. And so I pray for that miracle, for me of hearing and speaking, for my friends to receive and to understand, and that we all might be enlightened with the deeper truths you have for us today. Thank you for this unique point in time in all of our lives, and may we have ears to hear and eyes to see all that you have to instruct us. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, here's the big idea, the main point or the takeaway I want to lean into today as we gather around God's word. It's this. To experience the reality of God's life-changing love, we must love like he does. Today we're going to conclude the last part of Matthew 5. If you recall, two weeks ago, Pastor Allen began to unpack this section of teachings that begin a series of statements that all began as Jesus said, You have heard it said, but I say. And if you recall from the start of chapter 5, Jesus redefined the requirements for faithful living, calling anger as sinful as murder, lust as dangerous as adultery. He railed against casual divorce and affirmed God's high calling of marriage. He insisted that our promises stand on their own, that we had integrity in our words and didn't need an oath to drive our point home. In essence, Jesus was pointing to the power of our core motivations because he wants all who followed him then and who follow him now to live in faithfulness and trust, moving from an external obedience to an internal embrace, embrace of the spirit of the law. Now remember, while the Bible was written for us, those who serve and follow Jesus today, it was not written to us. This word originally was given to a specific people at a particular point in time or a unique juncture in history. But while we are not the original audience, we are part of the intended audience. So as we work to understand the text, I want to ask you to indulge me for a minute. So be a good sport. And picture yourself putting on a pair of those virtual reality glasses. And as you adjust the straps, I'll remind you where Matthew has reported to us previously in his gospel. He told us that Jesus had been moving throughout that region, proclaiming the good news, preaching about the kingdom of heaven, ministering to the people, healing the sick, blessing them in every way. And now, as we start chapter 5, we read this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So look through those glasses. Can you see Jesus sitting on a higher part of the slope above them on the hillside? Some are listening closely. Others are milling around in the fringe of the crowd. There are those kids messing around in the back. But look for a moment a little more closely at the crowd. Some have followed with heart, soul of gratitude because Jesus has healed them. They were gathered together, maybe in a section, sharing their testimonies of God's miraculous work in their lives. Some others are here listening to Jesus because they're wanting more of a show. They want to see the crippled dude run. They want to sit in the front for the next episode. Some are curious, some are suspicious, Some are opportunistic, looking for a free meal. Some have been forced to come, dragged along by somebody else. But there are those, and perhaps many, as there are today, earnestly seeking, leaning in, listening intently, wanting to decide if Jesus is really who he says he is, wanting to be with him. And so lift up those glasses for a moment and ask yourself the question where are you today? Where do you see yourself in that crowd as you listen to the words of Jesus? Are you curious or are you weary? Are you distracted? Are you trying hard to listen and follow, wondering if he's worth it, asking for a sign, looking for a reason to keep at it? Wherever you are, and maybe you're many of those things, I want to ask you to be honest with yourself and be reminded that Jesus knows exactly where you are. And as he looked at compassion at that crowd in the first century, so he looks at all of us with compassion. Because Jesus always looks through a lens of love. And I want I want you to remember that context, seal that picture in your mind as we look into the text more deeply. Okay, put your glasses back on because Rabbi Jesus is about to instruct the crowd. And this is what he said. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Now you recall that earlier Jesus had instructed the crowd and introduced a concept of non-retaliation. His solution to violence is to respond with non-violence. When you're personally insulted, he instructed us to turn the other cheek. When you've been hauled into court, make peace for your adversary even along the way. When you're taken advantage of by soldiers, do more than you ask. When you're asked for a loan, give in abundance. Jesus taught that the only way to combat evil is with good. The only way to break the cycle of violence is to not return it. That first century crowd heard those words, and then with their heads still reeling, Jesus told them to love their enemies. Now, think of the situation of those who were sitting there with Jesus that day. They had been oppressed under Roman occupation for generations, they were taxed at upwards of 80%. Most of their income went to fuel the empire, not to feed their families. They were oppressed and abused in every way possible, economically, physically, religiously, and of course, emotionally. So when Jesus said to them, love your enemies, did you see their jaws drop? Love our enemies, they murmured. Love the Romans. What was Jesus really saying? Did he really mean love, like with a capital L? Was he speaking hypothetically? Well, you can take your glasses off now, because while we need to see what it meant to them, we're responsible for what Jesus is saying to us. So let's begin by looking at some definitions. A neighbor in the first century meant someone who was in your tribe, someone like you, someone who belonged to your group. So to the Israelites on that hillside, it was a fellow Israelite. An enemy was defined for us by Jesus in the text, someone who persecuted the faithful. It included both opponents of God's will, opponents of God's purposes, as well as a personal opponent. Those were enemies. But then we get to that troubling little word, love. What kind of love did Jesus mean? Well, Jesus didn't come up with a new teaching to present there on that hillside. He's referencing a portion in Leviticus 19 where there's a whole section about caring for your enemies, even for their property. But caring for is different than loving, isn't it? So back to the word love. The Greek word used in the text is agape. Many of you know that the Greeks had numerous words for love, But it was this little used word, agape, that was picked up by the Christians and applied because it represented a a sacrificial kind of love. A love that moves beyond emotion. It was the kind of love that Jesus showed. And so they adopted agape to describe the kind of love Jesus demands. But here's the promise. When we manage to actually do what Jesus is commanding, when we love our enemies We act like true children of our Heavenly Father. My husband Tim and I have four kids. And for those of you who are parents or those of you who are teachers, you can affirm this cliche statement because we live it out day in and day out. More is caught than taught. Amen? We see it happening all the time. Well, the Apostle Paul, as the spiritual father of the Corinthians, said this to them in Corinthians chapter 11. He said this, and you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. So if the goal of our discipleship is to become more like Jesus, the thing that makes us more, look more like him is when our behaviors are consistent with his character. That means that we need to love like Jesus does, and that includes loving our enemies. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't expect us to figure it all out. He gives us some direction right here in the text, And it begins simply with this. To love our enemies, we begin by praying for them. It's a direct instruction. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, I don't think this is the kind of prayer some of us have desired to utter. Lord, give them what they deserve right now. No, this kind of prayer is different. It's a charge to pray God's blessing over our enemies, to pray God's best for them to pray things that will prosper them and that they will flourish and become the kind of person Jesus intended for them from the beginning. When I was a girl still wearing those gold wire-rimmed glasses, I met a woman who was treated as an enemy by her mother-in-law. Seems that she, as the wife of this woman's only son, was not the person she would have chosen for her beloved boy. And one day I witnessed a hurtful exchange between the two of them, and even though I was a kid, I cringed. And I can't remember what was said. I don't remember the conversation between them, but I remember what this woman said to me when her mother-in-law had left, and she said this, It's hard to hate someone you're praying for. We are told directly to pray for our enemies, because prayer matters, Prayer changes things. It shifts things in the heavenly realms and it changes things in the deep places of our hearts. Notice it doesn't say we are merely to tolerate our enemies or put up with our enemies or endure our enemies or ignore our enemies. No, it says we're meant to love them, to seek their good so that they can be all that God created them to be. Pastor theologian Scott McKnight described it this way. Love is a rugged commitment. I want you to see this one. Can we get the slide up here? There we go. Whoops, we're a little ahead. Okay, so just listen in. Here we go. Love, there we go. Love is a rugged commitment to be with someone in a relationship with somebody for that person's good It's a willful act of caring. Author and pastor John Mark Comer says it's about turning an enemy into a neighbor through the medium of love. It's something we must choose to do. We choose to foster a relationship with them, to get to know them, and even invite them into our lives. McKnight continues, not to wink at their behavior, but to help them with a loving attitude. This quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. summarizes it well. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And notice what the text says to us in verse 43 and 44. You have heard the law that says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Hate your enemy, but love your enemies. It means all of them. You see, some have interpreted this scripture to say, we're only talking about political enemies, not our personal ones. Others have said, no, it's only about personal enemies, not the big forces of evil behind our political enemies. But I think the text is clear. Jesus said what he meant. Love our enemies, all of them. You've probably heard of Corey ten Boom. She and her family were devout followers of Jesus and lived out their faith in the difficult days in Holland during World War II. In 1944, close to the end of the war, Corey, her father, and her sister Betsy were captured and imprisoned by the Nazis for hiding Jews in their home. Her father died soon after capture. She and her sister Betsy were sent to the Ravensbrück concentration camp. Betsy died, but Corey survived. And after the war, she established a home in Holland, for victims of Nazi brutality. In her own journey of healing, she recognized this truth, and I'm quoting her here. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what, their physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. But calling others to love their enemies is much different than requiring it of ourselves. And this is the story of Corey's costly forgiveness when she came face to face with one of the guards from that Ravensbrook concentration camp. As I read her story, I want to encourage you to put those VR glasses on again so you can see her story as I read her words. As the man approached me, I immediately recognized him as the guard at Ravensbrook. I had just concluded my message, in which I used my favorite image. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. Now, he was in front of me, his hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know, as you say, that our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me. Of course, how could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him, and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I, I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like it to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. And again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? It could not have been many seconds that that he stood there, hand held out, but to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I have ever had to do. For I knew I had to do it. I understood that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If we do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And still, I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You must supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current began in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all of my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Friends, the testimony of Corey ten Boom is so powerful because it illustrates a truth only experienced by those who are willing to take God at his word and do the seemingly impossible. To experience the reality of God's life-changing love, we must love like he does. And that means we must forgive them. Forgiving our enemies is the next step toward loving them. And if we are willing to try, I'm convinced that God will meet us there. Just like he met Corey... And as we strive to love like he does, he, we will be able to access the life-giving flow. It will well up into our lives that it will pour out in a sense of experiencing God in a way we never have before. We will know the redeeming love of God just like she did. This call to love, this call to forgive, to be reconciled to our enemies, it's a big ask. But it's nothing the Lord has not done for us because the Lord himself has plenty of enemies, even us. Let's look back at Matthew 5, and we'll get a glimpse of how God treats his enemies. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. For if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are only kind to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even the pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. You see, God loves all, no distinctions. He provides for everyone. His common grace is lavished on all his creatures. It's common practice all around the world to love your own. The good guys love their own, the bad guys love their own too. And so, how do we break the cycle? By loving like God does by imitating our Heavenly Father. For we were loved by God's common grace before the Spirit drew us with his kindness and mercy, and we experienced the life-giving flow forgiveness and redemption in Jesus. But remember, before that we understand from Romans chapter 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And then this, part of our new call from Corinthians. For God, who brought us back to himself through Christ, has given us this task of reconciling people to him. He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For it's the very ones, the theys, who are now enemies of God, who will never hear or experience His love unless we speak, unless we act, unless we move out as a vanguard for the Holy Spirit and impact our world with a functional difference than the way the world interacts. It's a radical call, it's countercultural. We're redefining, we're resetting the terms. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do it if we're willing to walk with him in obedience. And as we speak, we must use the same words he uses. Not words of accusation and condemnation, but words of mercy and of kindness and of love. Luke records Jesus' prayer on the cross. As his captors and his torturers stood before him, he prayed for their forgiveness. May we be bold to do the same. Yes, loving our enemies is costly, but we must remember that Jesus has gone before us and doesn't require anything of us. He hasn't already shown us how to do. God looks through the lens of love and he wants us to use the same kinds of glasses as we look out at the world. The third way to love our enemies is to be reconciled to them. For only then... Can we be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect? And while that sounds completely impossible, before you dismiss it as hyperbole, I want you to understand what the word is saying by keeping it in context. And it starts with understanding that word perfect. Pastor Allen has unpacked this for us before. It's a Greek word that's used here. It's teleos. And it means this. Perfect, complete, full grown, with nothing left undone, maturity, When Jesus calls his followers to be perfect, he's asking us to be spiritual grown ups, to stop acting like adolescents, to stop wimping out. He's asking us to follow his example in maturity, to trust him, and to follow. When Paul told the Corinthians to imitate him, it was because they were acting like spiritual babies. They were still drinking milk from the bottle when they should have long since been using a sharp knife to cut their steak and enjoy a good meal. And Paul wasn't name-calling the people in the church. He was pointing out the reason for, that their church was a mess. It was full of factions and divisions that looked like the world, not the holy people of God. They were so proud of their great knowledge and their philosophical sophistication, but they had no love for one another, even inside the walls of the church. That church fought over everything, from worship styles to what to wear to church to what to eat at restaurants and, of course, who to eat it with. That church had devolved into pettiness and trivia, not the kind of bribe Jesus envisioned. John Mark Comer said this, Love is the great litmus test. The test on Judgment Day isn't a theology exam, but a love exam. So as we close, I want you to put on those VR glasses one more time. And picture the Lord Jesus himself handing you a test. You don't have to write out any Bible verses or recite a creed or sing a song or give your testimony. It's a love test. How did you do? I think we as the American church would get a few things right off the top. But as we work our way down into the nitty-gritty of how we look in the world, I think we have some work to do. It's easy to love the people who love us, the people who agree with us, the people who affirm us, the people who encourage us. But loving the ones who hate us, who deride us, who mock us, who make fun of us, who persecute us, the ones who make our lives hard, Look, I'm not asking anyone to do anything unsafe, but Jesus is asking us all to do something terrifically countercultural. Can we do it, church? Can we link arms? Can we be different by looking different? By asking the Holy Spirit to fill us so we are different from the inside out and respond to those in a way that the world will drop their draw, jaws and marvel. At the God and the hope that is within us. Look, Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that He hasn't already done for us. He's taken the first step in everything and He will lead the way. Hey, and after dealing with this text all week, I can tell you that I have some work to do. Will you join me in the study session? Can we figure it out together? Can we practice it in real time here within this congregation at ACAC and hone our skill so we can pour out through the walls like we did last week and minister and heal and empower those to know the love of Christ? Maybe we should start by being honest with ourselves and recognizing the people we've labeled as enemies who we ignore or we merely tolerate. And instead, move into a friendship with them. Look for ways to treat them like neighbors, and maybe make them friends. So in all this, we can look through the lens of love and act like our heavenly Father. May you join me in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this hard word of instruction, this call to be mature, this call to be perfect. It's impossible without the empowerment of your spirit. But you will always respond to a humble heart. So Lord, with heart soft, a willingness to confess, I pray we would all move closer to mirror your love, not just for us, but for the world. Help us to see as you see. Help us to act as you act. Help us choose to look through that lens of love so that we might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, and be more more. And more and more like you. Lead us gently, Lord Jesus, as you guide us on the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. For we ask it in your powerful name. Amen. Amen. We stand now for the benediction. And so, Saints, as you leave this place, may you wear the glasses that Jesus wears. May you look through that lens of love as you serve Him. And love on the people around you. Have a great week serving the Lord. Amen.